siblings and coworkers, parents and supervisors. We all have people in our lives with whom it can be hard to get along. And even a good relationship has its rough spots. Join us as we take a kingdom approach to relationships. Heart Smart, a practical guide to relating like Jesus. Like, like most guys, uh, I, I'm on the job training here. I'm learning about all of this. But 35 years of marriage, I am sure I will tell you that I've, I've learned a few things. Uh, she's, she's teaching me. So I, I feel totally qualified to do a series on relationships. Totally. I'm the expert. Here you go. Here you go. She has to tell me when someone's insulted me. <laughs> I so don't get it. It's like, they just insulted you. So on a job training. Uh, I'm uh, Greg Boyd. I am a teaching pastor here. It's really good to worship with all of you. Work up a sweat doing uh, Jesus Zuba, as Mary said, uh, and uh, crack open the word. Um, so we're, yeah, oh, I first want to give a shout out. Thank you to Jeremy. Wasn't he outstanding last week? I love that guy. I just love that guy. He is, has the gift of taking really insightful stuff and packaging it in really concrete, practical ways. It was just that, that tree illustration with, with the banana was fantastic. Uh, he, he's good at that. He, he, but we have a relationship with him that's kind of developing that goes beyond that. Um, he stays over on Mondays and uh, meets with our executive team. And we find that he is gifted and strong in areas that we tend to be weak at. And we always want to be learning and improving, so he's kind of a consultant of sorts, so just really love that guy, full of insight. So we are starting this series called Heart Smart, and it's about relationships, it's about emotional intelligence, uh, it's about uh, waking up to the ways that maybe we've been shaped by uh, dysfunctional systems and family and relationships we've had in the past, and uh, how we sometimes pass those things on. If we're not aware of them and don't get healed from them, we sabotage relationships. It's going to be about all sorts of relationships. Um, We'll be talking about kingdom principles that apply to marriage and apply to uh, dating romance relationships and apply to uh, siblings and uh, how we relate to our parents and, and uh, our children and our neighbors and our coworkers and our grouchy bosses and even our enemies. It's all about relationships. I think it's going to be a very important series. Uh, it's this kind of thing I, I would encourage you to invite your neighbors to. Uh, just say, hey, we're doing this thing. Because everybody deals with relationships, Right. And most of us have relationships that are jacked up to some degree. And so we're all looking for some help on this thing. And uh, this series could be a really good way of reaching out to people. So uh, for reasons that you'll, will be totally unclear for the first 20 minutes of, of this message, we're titling this Hunger Games. This is the first minute, Hunger Games. Yes, and about heart smart. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I... Submit. We submit this entire series to you and pray that you use it to teach us, instruct us, equip us, empower us, heal us, to be a people who relate to others, all others, in a way that um, is healthy and whole and most importantly brings glory to you. Use it, uh, Lord, to build your kingdom in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and everywhere else where we relate to others. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Okay, I want to start this way. I mentioned, how many Linkin Park fans do we have here? Uh, okay. I got to come up with a different analogy here then. Well, too late. I'm going with this. Uh, they're a little too mellow and slow and quiet for my taste, but uh, uh, I still really like this band. I went to their concert a couple of uh, months ago, um, and one song in particular caught my attention. Um, and uh, I thought it would be a good launching point. So this is Linkin Park. Now, you, you can't, forewarning, I told Steve to crank it up because you can't listen to Linkin Park soft. 
Lincoln Park is only Lincoln Park if it's loud, so it's going to be a little voluminous, but uh, pay attention to this. It's got some really insight. Okay. Now do we have any Lincoln Park fans? I just love the way that guy can just scream, the visceral scream when he's singing. It's just, ah, I can't do it. But uh, he does it really cool. So here's this, this young lady. I mean, she just doesn't fit into the system. In every human system, every system of relationships, whether it's family or a school or society at large, uh, there's kind of an unspoken rule. It's either you conform or you pay a price. And she, having her artistic interests, uh, just doesn't fit in. She's an alien. Uh, but there's always this pressure. I love that phrase, you know, caught in the undertow. There's this pressure being put on her to meet expectations, to be like us, to be one of us. And if you're not one of us, well, then, 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 then you're on the outside. So she says, and, and she sees this at school. She gets it at home with her mother. Uh, but she says, don't know what you're expecting of me. Kind of saying this to the world in general. Put under the pressure of walking in your shoes, the shoes you think I should wear. Every step that I take is another mistake to you. And I love this phrase, caught in the undertow, just caught in the undertow. Uh, in every social system, family and otherwise, there's an undertow, there's a current trying to pull you in to conform. Uh, there's roles that you're supposed to play, things you're supposed to do, interests you're supposed to have. And if you don't conform, you pay a price. And uh, I'm sure many of us know what she's getting at, which is, is every step I take is another mistake to you because you never meet those expectations. You never quite uh, you know, fit the bill. You're, you're, you're always disappointed, disappointing somebody. I love the fact that they say at the end that what I know is that you were, were once someone who was disappointing someone. We pass these things on. Uh, you know, we, we, we don't measure up. And all that goes along with that, the wounds that go along with that, we pass on to others around us to get them to conform. So she's always trying to meet someone's expectations. She says, I'm tired of being what you want me to be. And all she wants to do is to be less like, more like me and less like you. Uh, to be who she really is. As a result of all this, she's getting numb. Uh, trying to always fit into the program that the system has for us. She's getting numb. The real her is disappearing. Uh, there's no life in this. She's not fully alive when she's trying to conform to these expectations. And then at the end, uh, she runs into this church. In fact, the whole song is done in this church. What does that mean? I'll come to that uh, a little bit later on. So I'm, I'm betting that a lot of us hearing this message this weekend come out of families or other social systems where you felt pressured to walk in someone's shoes, the shoes that they gave you, to conform to some role, to fit into some mold. And you probably didn't even know it. In fact, we rarely know these things. We just kind of do them automatically. But if we don't wake up to them and address them, uh, they can stay with us our whole life. Uh, we, we, we default to roles that are given to us, even though it's not us, and it numbs us. It sucks life out of us. About 25 years ago, I guess it was. Actually, I have no idea how long ago it was, because I can't keep track of time at all anymore. It could have been last week or 30 years ago. I, it's just all blurred to me right now. But a long time ago... Um, I, I, my, my, my grandpa died. I love this guy. And so Shelly and I went out to Detroit uh, for the funeral. Spent a couple days out there. And uh, it was a reunion of sorts for our, our family. I, my dad and my older brother, my older sister, my younger sister were, were all there. Um, and uh, we hung out together and did some things. And about two or three days into it, Shelly made an observation. She goes, you're really different around your family, especially around your dad and uh, older brother. 
And um, I said, no, I'm the same. What are you talking about? Because I didn't notice this. She goes, yeah, you're like, you seem insecure. You're quiet. You're, you're, you, you, they always drive the conversation and you sheepishly try to you know, express your own thoughts, but they just kind of bulldoze over you and you don't say anything about it. You never stand up for yourself. Uh, it, this isn't, where, where did you go? You're, you're not here. And she was right. She was absolutely right, although I didn't notice it. But being around them, it's not their fault. This is just how social systems in the fallen world work. There was a role that I always played, and it was that one. So for all intents and purposes, when I'm hanging out with them 20-some years ago, I become this six-year-old younger brother who had a speech impairment and stuttered and, and could never uh, get words in because in conversations you got to jump in at the right moment. And I would always just kind of get blocked up, and, and so the conversation would go on. I could never get in there. I was always the younger brother who never quite was as good at getting dad's attention and approval as my older brother was, and um, just didn't have the interest that counted in this family. Um, I, I just was the, kind of the outsider, and it wasn't, I'm not blaming anybody, it's just how the system worked. But I've long since outgrown that, and yet when I come back into this system, boom, it's, the role is imposed on you, and if we're not aware of it, we just play right along thing is, every social system has sort of a reward system in it. Uh, a system by which you get points for doing certain things, and you get points detracted uh, for doing certain things. Uh, some sociologists call this the hero game, or the hero system. In every family, and every subculture, and the society at large, there's an understanding of, of what, what it takes to be a hero. What points get you higher up in the system? And what things will detract from the system? This young lady was uh, not playing a hero game. She was losing at it because she didn't conform in the classroom and with her friends and with her mother. And so she was an outsider. It's a hero system. And so in my family, the hero system was, was largely built around sports. Um, that's what uh, my dad was really into. And so if you're good at sports and like to talk about sports, well, then you could be a hero in the system. You got the attention. You got the approval. If you spend a lot of time playing with a stick and a string by yourself, uh, that, that didn't win any approval. Um, being obsessed with death didn't really win anyone's approval. Uh, you know, liking music and getting into drums and not really caring much about sports at all. Uh, those sorts of things just didn't register on the radar screen. In other families, that might have counted, but in this one, it just didn't count. Uh, not being that good at, at the sports, at least not as good as, as other folks, as your older brother, I see that detracted points. And so that was the role I played. That's kind of what I fell into. Again, no one's fault. It's just how that system works. This hero system. How do you get points? Uh, we need to become aware of these things uh, because they condition us. And, and unless we do something to uh, prevent it, to get healed from it, uh, we, we carry these things on. They can sabotage future relationships can mess everything up. Do you ever find something like that where when you're around the family, it's just different, or when you're around a certain kind of person, it's just different? Or you ask the question, why, whenever I hear a, a man raise their voice, all of a sudden I, I, I feel shamed? Uh, that's not me. Why, why, why does that happen? You get triggered. Why is it I'm still trying to get dad's approval even though I know that I'm never, I'm never going to get it? Why do I keep trying this? I keep banging my head against the same wall. Why is it that my husband and I, we can converse about everything, but on this particular topic, we tend to turn to these pagan brawlers? What's with that? Uh, you know, why is it that a, a, a certain kind of person just makes me nervous? Why is it that I turn into this six-year-old boy when I'm around my family? Uh, those are the kind of things that we need to be addressing. Now, throughout this series, we'll, we'll talk a lot about practical kingdom principles. That I can apply to our relationships on communication and conflict resolution and all that. But what I want to do this morning at the start of this thing is lay a real foundational teaching. 
that uh, it has to be in place if we're going to be making progress and getting whole on our, our, our relationships. I can start with this. Um, Jesus says this, and really, it sums up everything that we can say about relationships in the kingdom. He says, a new teaching I'm giving you, John 13, new teaching I'm giving you, a new command, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Why does he call that a new command? The command to love one another is there in the Old Testament. In fact, you find the command to love one another all over the place in literature prior to the time of Christ. What's new about this? What's new, I think, is the way Jesus clarifies it when he says, love one another, and here's what I mean. As I have loved you, as I have loved you, so love one another. That's new. To love the way Jesus loves us. And the way Jesus loves us is, is most clearly expressed when he gives his life for us on the cross. So John even defines love, love in the kingdom, he defines love by pointing us to the cross. First John 3.16. You know, everybody knows John 3.16, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But first John 3.16 is at least as important because it defines what love is. John says this, here's how we know what love is. Here's how we know what love is. Not by some song you heard or by what was modeled in your family or what your intuition says. You know love by looking at the cross. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Uh, this is the very definition of love. Uh, John says that God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And then he defines love like this. So God is the kind of love that is revealed on a cross. God is from all eternity in his own being as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is this other-oriented, self-giving love. Right? God is the kind of love that pours himself out for another. And God's been doing that from all eternity. Then God creates the world to express that love, to invite others in on that love. Um, And so this is the kind of love that's supposed to characterize all of our relationships. It's cross-like love. It applies to marriage, neighbors, co-workers, angry bosses, enemies, everybody. We're to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And that's why you find, I mean, this is central to what it means to be a disciple. Because everything's about relationships. Since we're made in the image of the relational God, everything is about relationships. And this is why, folks, this is so central, it's expressed over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. Model Jesus Christ. Imitate Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5. Imitate God, he says, and here's how you do it. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Mimic God. And see, when we do that, when we, when we take cross-like love and apply it to all of our relationships, well, since the world is created by the cross-like God, they work well. Everything's designed to work well when we reflect the character of God in our relationships. So our relationships will be healthy and whole and life-giving to the degree that we are applying cross-like love to them. Uh, they will be godly to the degree that we're applying cross-like love because that's the kind of love that reflects the character of God. So by definition, it's godly. On the other hand, to the degree that cross-like love is absent in our relationship, we're not deferring to others, putting the interests of others above ourselves, but rather we're trying to get things from others. To that degree, our relationships are not going to be life-giving. They're going to be life-sucking. And they're going to be unhealthy. They're going to be broken. They'll be breaking us, and we'll be breaking others. Uh, and to that degree, we're going to be in the process of becoming numb, not fully alive, not fully awake. Everything's designed to work well when we're modeling, reflecting the character of the cross like God. 
Now, I want to be clear about something here, because whenever I teach on this, there's always a few who hear me say something that I'm not saying. Uh, this doesn't mean that followers of Jesus are supposed to be doormats and let people walk all over us and emotionally or physically abuse us or victimize us in some ways. See, Jesus freely chose to lay down his life. He says that explicitly. No one's doing this to me. I choose to do this. Out of love, he chose to sacrifice, to ascribe unsurpassable worth to others, even his enemies. He chose that. It wasn't required of him. It wasn't imposed on him. He wasn't anybody's victim. He did it freely, out of love. That is love when you choose to do it. But it's not loving when you don't choose to do it, when it's somebody else who's making you sacrifice. That's not love at all. And so if you're in a relationship where there is physical, emotional abuse or some other kind of victimization going on, where you're being dehumanized, um, what's required, what love requires is that you do everything possible to put an immediate stop to that. In fact, what love requires is that if it's serious enough and nothing else works, what love requires is that you be willing to walk away from it. Uh, because staying there isn't doing you any good or them any good. You're not ascribing worth to yourself or them because you're give, sending the message that this is an appropriate way to treat people. And it's not. You're in the image of God. This is not how people made in the image of God who have unsurpassable worth should be treated. And even that is done out of love. It's tough love, but you do it out of love because what's being sacrificed here isn't you, but the relationship. And if you love somebody, that can be a real, real hard thing to walk away from. Um, and you do it with the hope that they'll finally get the point. They'll finally learn that this is not how, how you treat people. But sometimes you've got to walk away. In all other cases, however, whenever the, in a relationship, we are the ones choosing to sacrifice for another, to defer to another, to support another, come under another. Well, that is cross-like love, and that's the kind of love we're to bring to all of our relationships. So in the end, folks, it just comes down to this. Apply this new command to love like Jesus loves. Apply it to all your relationships, and things will be healthy and whole and happy. God bless you. Go out and do it. On your mark, say, go. See you next week. Okay. I might say one more word about it. I wish it was that simple. Well, actually, it is that simple. This isn't, you know, this isn't rocket science. It is that simple. Live in that kind of love. On the other hand, it's not at all that simple uh, because we can't do it. The reality is, the reality is, is that in our fallen state, on our own, we cannot love like this. Uh, it's not a question of willpower. You can will to do it. Really know that you ought to do it. You should do it. Try hard to do it. But it doesn't work like that. It's not a question of will. It's a question of capacity. And in our fallen condition on our own, we simply lack the capacity to love like this with any kind of consistency on our own. Fortunately, we're not on our own. Amen? Uh, and this is uh, what I think is one of the profound aspects of that video why the girl runs into the church at the end. Now, maybe I'm overinterpreting it until he says I kind of theologize everything. The person could sneeze and I could find theological significance in it. But it seems to me that the song is saying, and Lincoln Park does this, they, they, they have these little subtle allusions to the Christian faith. Um, I think that what they're saying, at least what I hope they're saying, at least what I want to say, I don't care what they're saying, is the only way we can love the way Christ loves is if we're abiding in Christ, if we're running to Christ, if we're getting our life and our source from Jesus Christ. It all comes down to that. Amen. Now, I want us to see not only that that is true, but I want us to see why it is true. And so this, I'm going to here give a fundamental teaching. Founda- in fact, it's as foundational as anything I could possibly say from this pulpit. Um, because of that, I've given it with some frequency here, not in the last year or two, but if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard this before, but I encourage you to keep on listening so it might just get down deeper than it ever has before. This is, I think, the key that unlocks everything. 
Okay, so just check this out. Here's the truth. We are created with a God-shaped vacuum in the core of our being. The very center of our being is emptiness. And everybody on some level senses this. Um, We have a longing that only our Creator can meet. A hunger that only our Creator can satisfy. It is what I call a hunger for life. Because when this need is met, we feel fully alive. And to the degree it's not met, we don't feel fully alive. We feel numb. It is a need to feel uh, significant and valued and, and that you have a purpose, a reason for being, and that you're fully known and loved as you're fully known and feel secure in that love. To the degree that those things are being met, um, we feel uh, fully alive. To the degree that they're not, we feel numb. Now, it's really good and important to have relationships with people that, in which you feel significant and valued and have a purpose and you feel loved and you feel secure in that love. That's good. But even if people could love you perfectly, which never happens in this fallen world, but even if it could, they could love you perfectly, it still wouldn't satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. The intensity of your hunger is something that only your creator can fill. And God created you that way on purpose. This isn't like some defect. The emptiness isn't a result of the fall. It, it's, it's part of our being made in the image of God. God created us with this vacuum, this God-shaped vacuum that only he can fill, Because he's a God who loves to give himself away. He is, his very essence is this cross-like love. He likes to give himself away. So it makes sense that he would create a people who desperately need him to give himself away. He is, as we sometimes sing, the air that we breathe. Our soul needs him like our lungs need air. And so he creates a people with this desperate need. And that desperate need, that emptiness, that hunger, is meant to be a homing device that drives us to him. Uh, so that we just open ourselves up and he pours himself into us. Uh, this is God's original design. And if we did this, it would be absolutely beautiful. It's a wonderful, beautiful design. Uh, the, the, the goal is this. God wants to pour himself wholly into us. Not only just to meet that, that need, that fill that vacuum, but so that we would overflow out of a fullness. And out of a fullness then, we return this love and this life back to God. We express it to God. And out of this fullness, we apply it to ourselves. And out of this fullness, we overflow towards others. And out of this fullness, all of humanity would take care of the earth and the animal kingdom. That's the original design. That's how it's supposed to work. The overabundant God flowing into us, causing an overabundance towards one another, causing an overabundance to the earth. It'd be a beautiful, celebratory, exuberant dance. It's, it's the dance of the triune God, I sometimes say. And that's what the, the, the goal has been all along. It's for us to be a people who dance with the triune God. Who just get all needs, the core needs met inside of us. And then we go to our relationships, not to get something, but to overflow. And to be beautiful and wonderful. And praise God, someday it's going to happen. Someday it's going to happen. And see, now the, then the whole creation reflects the glory of God. Because the whole creation reflects this cross-like, self-giving, other-oriented love. And it's joy and ecstasy. Now, you may have noticed that we're not quite there yet. Uh, No, our relationships tend to be jacked. And the ultimate reason why our relationships get dysfunctional and screwed up and cause wounds, ultimate reason is because we're not getting our fullness of life from God. So here's what happens. It's it's the story of Genesis 3. It's the story of the fall. It's the story of all of us. Satan seduces Eve with a deceptive picture of God, an ugly picture of God. And when you've got an ugly mental picture of God, you're not going to be going to God as your source of life. You can only get life from a God that you trust, a God who's beautiful, a God that you are convinced is for you, not against you. This is why I'm always harping on the importance of our mental pictures of God. The beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your mental picture of God. 
So Eve believes a lie about God, and this is really the original sin. And that then deflects the fullness of life flowing into her. God still is an overflowing God of love and life, but now it's not going to get through to the core of Eve's being because she's not opening herself up to him. Uh, she's believing this lie. But that need that she's got will never go away. That's, that's a non-negotiable permanent uh, need. And so the minute God's not meeting that need, she starts to get hungry. And as she gets hungry, she looks at that forbidden tree, which is God's loving no stop, no stop or uh, no trespassing sign. And it looks like good food to her. The Bible says that she thought it was pleasing and good to make one wise. You know, they say if you're hungry enough, uh, bugs start to look appetizing. Uh, everything starts to look like food if you're starving. And so I, I suspect that that tree only looked like that because Eve was now looking at it with hungry eyes. And so now she's going to have to meet her own need, try to fill herself by something she acquires, something she gets, something she, someone she impresses. And uh, she violates God's prohibition and eats from that tree. This is the story of humanity, folks. This is the story of all of us insofar as we're not getting our life from Christ. When that, that, that vacuum on the inside is not being filled by God, well, something else has got to fill it. And so now we're going to live our lives, rather than living out of a center of celebration that expresses the fullness we have from God for free, we're going to be living life out of a center of desperation, trying to acquire what God wants to give us for free. Uh, we, we, we're trying to feed ourselves, trying to feel significant, trying to feel worthwhile, trying to feel secure. And now, folks, the world turns into one big hunger game. We're all hungry. Everyone's hungry. And there's a million different varieties of hunger games. But it's all, I think it's the most fundamental driver of human behavior. The need to be significant, to feel secure, to feel loved, to be known, uh, to have a purpose. It drives everything. It is why I'm convinced some, some try to play the hunger game of acquiring power of, over others. Others try to uh, play the power game of acquiring a lot of wealth. And they could have more money than they could possibly spend in five lifetimes, but they still want more. Because it's not about the money, it's about a sense of significance and purpose. Uh, they're, they're winning the hero game, you know, uh, by counting all this money. Others, you know, uh, this is why my kids say to parents endlessly, look at me, look what I can do, look at this, look at this. It's a legitimate thing. They just want to feel significant and loved. It's why the bully on the playground feels the need to beat up little kids. He's in some point system where that means something to him. It's why some drive airplanes into skyscrapers or blow themselves up in the middle of marketplaces. It's why some people have eating disorders where they're obsessed with their appearance and uh, can't get skinny enough. It's why some try to be the best at throwing a football or singing or the most intelligent in the room or trying to impress somebody in other ways. There's a million different kinds of hunger games, but they're all driven by this hunger. It's why religion, far back as you go, you find folks willing to offer up their firstborn child because they're trying to be significant to the gods, get the gods on their side. And that same hunger drives religious people today to get life from believing all the right things and having all the right behavior as opposed to those who have the wrong beliefs and wrong behavior. It's all one big hunger game. And none of it satisfies. All of it is idolatry because anything that plays a role in our life that only God is supposed to play is an idol. So it's an idolatrous hunger game. And this is what's behind all human fear. It's a fear of losing your idol. Losing that significance, that meaning, that purpose, that security. It scares the kajibers out of us. We're afraid that we might not get it. Or we're afraid that if we have it, it might not be satisfying, which eventually proves true. Or we're afraid that if we have it, someone might take it from us. One thing is certain that it will be taken from us, and that's why we're afraid of death. It's behind all fear. It's behind all sin. Behind every sin, there is a, a, a hunger, a, a legitimate hunger being met in an illegitimate way. It's behind jealousy and envy and strife and all of that. Think about it. 
This is also the thing that's behind all the conflict in the world, all the violence. If you get this inner hunger, you understand the world makes sense in a, in a jaded kind of a way. Because uh, look at when you've got a bunch of people walking around hungry, starving, they're going to be competing for food. Everyone's scrabbling for a morsel of worth, a morsel of significance and security. And so the world turns into a feeding frenzy. We're like a bunch of sharks going after a piece of meat that was thrown overboard. It's just this feeding frenzy. Everyone's competing to try to win in the hero game. And you can only have so many idols. There's only so many to go around. And only one can be the ultimate hero. And so it becomes one big feeding frenzy. And it, conflict and strife, violence is absolutely inevitable. That's why we're not going to fix the problem of the world uh, with any kind of political solution or any other good idea. It's, it's just, as long as people are walking around starving, there is going to be violence. You can put in laws and stuff to try to prevent it, and that's good, but this problem will only go away when people are tapped into their true source of life. And this is why, folks, relationships get broken, get jacked up, and become wounding. Uh, this is why we can't obey the command of Jesus to love as he loves us. If we're walking around hungry, think about it. See, in a world where everyone's, if, if you're starving, the world all becomes potential food. Everything can become potential food. And um, uh, you're asking, how can I use it to feel significant, worthwhile, secure, and all the rest? And that includes our relationships. We don't like to admit this, but to the degree that we're hungry, we go into relationships to feed something in us. We have other motives too, and they're good. But at the core, there's going to be this need to try to get significance and worth and value from the other person. And um, then we get disappointed because it never quite satisfies. And see, it's impossible to go into a relationship and ascribe worth to another at cost to yourself, as God does to us on the cross. It's impossible to go in with that motive, while at the same time you're trying to get worth, maybe at cost to them. It just does not work. It all comes down to satisfying the hunger that drives us. Um, and... Uh, uh, Going back to our, our original source. You see this hunger-drivenness in the, in, 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 in the hero systems that I mentioned before. In every social system, there's a hero system. Something that counts as being a hero, what gives you points, what takes away points, it's all part of the game. It's what humans do. It's one way that we get life. Uh, and this is why, you know, in families, for example, the hero system usually revolves around some parental approval, or grandparental approval, whoever is, happens to be the point giver in a social system. Getting in on them is, 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 is how you, you, you get your life. This is why, as some of us will maybe testify, uh, Thanksgiving dinners can be so funky sometimes. You even know what I'm talking about, or Christmases. They just get weird. Because here's what happens. You get two 40-year-old guys, for example, for, they're in their 40s, and they're healthy, and they're confident, and they got it together, you know, and they're successful. Uh, you know, they're, they're mature. But as soon as they get around dad, they start, they, they turn into 8- and 10-year-olds who are competing for his attention and approval, and there's all sorts of weird undercurrents. You get caught in the undercurrent, and it gets funky. It's just weird. It never happens other places, but in this social context, it begins to happen. It just gets odd. And the two brothers are playing the hero game, and the parents are playing the hero game. In fact, everybody that's playing the hero game, they have something to contribute, except maybe the sister, the younger sister, 35, who learned around the age of five that being a female, she's never going to win in this hero game. It only applies to males. And um, yeah, dad's just never going to be that impressed with her. And so she maybe opts out of that game and decides to join a hero game that she has a chance at winning at. And so this could be the younger sister who ended up becoming promiscuous and having two abortions and being married and divorced three times and having run-ins with the laws. And she struggles with substance abuse for 20 years. And she doesn't know it, but she's probably still trying to get the love of a guy that her dad never gave her. 
Still playing that hunger game. Same hunger, just it's a slightly different game. And the rest of the family judges her, and the role she plays in the family is being the classic scapegoat, the black sheep of the family. So even if you lose in the hero game, at least you're better than her. This is the person that everybody feeds off of. And they judge her. They judge her, why can't you be like your successful brothers? But in fact, it's that system that caused her to go down that track. Uh, These things are wounding, damaging, but they're all around us. And because they're all around us and we live in them, you know, the fish don't notice the water they swim in. So also, also we rarely notice the dysfunctional stuff of the systems that we're a part of. You really see this hunger-driven, uh, 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 the hunger-driven nature of the hero game in um, American courtships. And so if you're dating somebody right now, listen up. If you're married, it's too late, so deal with it. But <laughs> here's what happens. Here's what happens. Ryan meets Destiny. Ryan's cute. Destiny's cute. Uh, they're both empty, and they're looking for, you know, to be completed. And so uh, they, they, they get each other's attention. Now, they all understand the hero game of this culture. They know what counts, what, what, what's important. So here begins the show. It, this variety of the Hunger Game we could call the Peacock Game. Because Ryan, he wants to get Destiny, and so he fluffs his peacock feathers. Right, last night at the service we had a debate. Is that called fluffing, or is it called fanning, or is it called preening? I don't care. I'm going to call it fluffing. I think it's preening, though. He preens his beautiful feathers. And, and says, check this out, chick, man, look at me. He's the together guy. He's the sexy guy. He's the spiritual guy. He's the funny guy. He's the witty guy. He's the well-read guy. Whatever it is that, 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 that Destiny will like, pff, he puts it on. He looks full of life. Now, Destiny is walking around empty, and she's hungry for fullness of life. And here comes Ryan, who seems to be fullness of life. Now, she knows if she's going to get this prize peacock, well, there's, she's got to ruffle, fluff her own feathers. And so, pff, here they go. Uh, check this out, dude. Uh, you know, th- she's got her sexy on, her spiritual on, her smart and witty and funny and, and whatever other things would constitute being a hero in this social system. And they're not aware that they're doing a lot of emptiness. This isn't deceptive. It's just what the system requires. They're trying to just... So they're tra- their emptiness is attracted to each other's apparent fullness. And then they get married. And they live happily ever after. Not. <laughs> It takes a week or a month, maybe even a year, but sooner or later they begin to sniff out some emptiness. <laughs> Along with all the dad and mom issues and all the other dysfunctional stuff that they... Everyone's got a prequel. When you marry them, you marry the prequel. <laughs> that just goes with it. Find out the prequel ahead of time. You'll be ahead of the game. But uh, so they start to discover all this. And there's the emptiness there and, and brokenness there. And on some level, and everyone says they don't believe this, but as far as I can see, most people do. They had thought they'd be completed or at least be more full than they were before. I know you, you complete me. Um, they deny it, but, but at some level they were looking to be completed. So when they discover that this person is just as empty as they are, well, this doesn't work very well. So they start to fix each other. They wear these shoes. <laughs> Play this role. This is what you're supposed to do, what you ought to do, what a good husband would do, what I expected you to do. And so they, you try to conform them into the, your own image, the image that you have of what a good spouse would be. And now they're heading down the road of numbness. See? This is one of the reasons, I'm sure, maybe the most fundamental reason why half of all marriages, and almost half of marriages, break up. And I've read that half of the ones that don't are unhappy. Uh, they're, they're, they're playing a losing hunger game. Here's the math of the thing. One, va- one vacuum plus another vacuum equals a huge vacuum. <laughs> it just doesn't work. When you go into the relationship empty, expecting to get full, you just create a, a huge black hole. It's like two vacuum cleaners kissing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge suction. It's, literally, the marriage sucks. <laughs> it, 
Because everyone's trying to get full. It doesn't work. It's not how marriages were, 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 were designed. It ought to be the case that we go in not to be, whether it's marriage or any other relationship, we are called to go into it not to get full, but to express full. Because we're getting full from our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The reality is, folks, no human being, the most loving, wonderful human being, is going to fully satisfy the hunger inside. A human being can't heal you from the, from the hunger game system that's broken you, can't, can't empower you to, to love the way Jesus loves. The only one who can do that is Jesus Christ. The only one who can save you is Jesus Christ. Amen. And this is what... This is what salvation is about. The only one who can restore you, heal those wounds, uh, fill you to the point where you can now enter into the relationship out of a fullness is Jesus Christ. So everything hangs on a relationship with Jesus Christ. The health of our relationships with others will never outrun the health of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And the beauty of our relationships will never outrun the beauty of our mental picture of Jesus Christ. He is. The, the God revealed on the cross is the axis around which everything in the kingdom rotates. And so, folks, I, I'm going to just end by imploring us to be a people who regularly are setting aside time and then make it a part of our, integrate into our life. We get all of our life and worth and significance and value and security from what God thinks about us as revealed on the cross. See, the security we long for is only found in Him because everything else dies and gets stolen, moth corrupts, thieves can steal. But see... The life that we get from Christ, well, it doesn't depend on what mood you're in or what mood anyone else is in. It doesn't depend on what the opinion polls say about you. It doesn't depend on whether you have a good spirit today or a bad spirit today. It doesn't depend on your health. It doesn't even depend on you being alive. Death can't touch this, praise God, because this is eternal. It goes on forever and ever. And that's what our soul longs for. That's why perfect love casts out fear. You lose fear once you really get this down. As the worship team comes up, I'll just say one other word. Uh, some people ask the question, well, how do I do that? How do I get life? How do I get that fullness? And all the spiritual disciplines are about that. And, and so those are good to read and practice. Practicing the presence of God, for example. They open you up to receiving the fullness of life that, that comes from Christ. But one that I found particularly helpful, and throughout church history you find this, and I write about it in the book, Seeing is Believing. Uh, it has to do with using your imagination, imaginative prayer. Where you just set aside a time to imagine, ask the Spirit to help you imagine, vividly imagine... Jesus talking with you. And I think this is the way the Holy Spirit actually brings Jesus to us. His job is to point us to Jesus. And we begin to experience His love. And just hear Jesus and see Jesus and sense Jesus, however you do it, saying to you all the things He's already said about you in Scripture, but now He says it with your name. He says it through His eyes. You can see that. He says it with the hug and whatever, however else He communicates it. And just love Jesus loving you. Paul talks about this in, in, in 2 Corinthians 3. It's as we behold the beauty of His glory, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's beholding Him in our mind that transforms us. And this is where you just drink from that well, that wellspring of life. Just soak it up. Let Him love you. You don't have to feel anything. Just, just envision this and, and just drink it up. Love Jesus loving you. Enjoy Jesus enjoying you. And see, that's the dance. And this is what your soul was created for. It's like, ah, Food, Just drink from that. Because, folks, the, it, the goal is to get to the point where, really, the reason why you feel fully alive and you feel secure and you feel like your life is worthwhile and you feel significant, the reason is because your Creator thinks you're worth dying for in Calvary and He loves you that much. And it's good to have it from other people, yes, to reaffirm that. But this is the core right here. And now the rest of the world can hate you, and that's sad, but it's not going to destroy you because you know who you are. You have your identity from your relationship with Christ. 
And now you live life not out of a center of emptiness, playing the hunger game, but out of a center of fullness. Now you can overflow. And that's the way it was always meant to be. All right, uh, we're going to go back into a time of worship. Uh, We'll start by taking up an offering, because what we do with our money is worship, or not. Uh, And we're called to express the value that God and His kingdom has to us by the priority it has in our finances. So I encourage you to submit all of that to the Lord and follow His leadings. Pray with me here. Father, as we go go to worship you now, again, I pray, Lord, that you uh, grab our chins to focus on you, to imagine you, imagine what we're singing about, who we're singing to. I pray that we could enter into this with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our body, all of our strength, and set aside everything else. I pray, Lord God, that you continue to meet the needs of this ministry through the faithfulness of your people and stewarding your resources. We submit it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.